This is Doug Hadaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Travian Shorters is a New York Times bestselling author and an international authority on a powerful, important way of thinking and communicating. It's called asset framing. It's a hot topic among leaders and organizations looking to make positive change because asset framing can be a game changer. You'll hear how in our conversation with Trabian, a founder of the BME community, a nonprofit, and a network of black leaders who are community builders. In this episode of Achieve Great Things, we'll talk with Trabian Shorters about asset framing, a paradigm-shifting approach to communication. Trabian, I know you're a man in demand, so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Yep. No, I'm super excited to be here. So for those who don't know you, please tell us the story of BME Community. What is your mission and what are you all working to achieve? Sure. Uh, once upon a time, I was vice president of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation uh, back in 2011. Uh, we started uh, experimenting in this question of how do you engage people in their communities in ways uh, that recognize their contributions, that recognize their aspirations, uh, and specifically how to engage black males was how it began. Uh, and we got such surprising and positive early results that we ended up uh, repeating the program a second year. And then in the third year, we spun it out of the foundation altogether as its own thing. So BME originally stood for Black Male Engagement, BME, Black Male Engagement. Um, but in spinning out in 2013, we focused on, we recognized, number one, that black male engagement is not a problem. Black men are positively engaged in the communities, giving back in all kinds of ways that go unrecognized and ignored. So we recognized um, it wasn't so much about how to get black males engaged. It was more about how to recognize black male engagement and, and to build upon their strengths rather than always emphasizing uh, their challenges. And so from that simple understanding came the practice that we call asset framing. Um, asset framing is literally asking and answering for yourself what happens if we stop defining and engaging uh, everyone in ways that stigmatize people like if we stop defining everybody by their you know greatest challenge worst potential like if we weren't orienting ourselves to focus on people's deficits what else would we see and it turns out that when you use asset framing when you recognize that whatever population you're dealing with also makes positive contributions to society, also has positive aspirations. turns out that when you use that new frame, you actually raise more money, which I think would probably be a surprise to people. You definitely engage a broader cross-section of people. Um, you actually have higher social impact in terms of like literally folks have had transformational po uh, policy impacts as a consequence of asset framing. And you do all these things without stigmatizing people. You're not adding to the types of oppression they experience by having the public only able to understand them by patterns of uh, inferiority. Yeah, let's paint the picture for folks who aren't familiar with it. Um, mm -hmm. And I've uh, been privileged to be part of a workshop and seen you and your colleagues talk about this. Um, it's been called one of the best workshops on equity that's out there. Um, so mm -hmm. let's give our listeners a taste of that. Um, sure. In the workshop, you really open people's eyes to this by posing some questions to them. Uh, what kind of questions do you ask them? Yeah. Um, so I recently spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and I'll also be speaking at the Action Forum uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, and this is the conversation, you know, the way I like to open the conversation was let's talk about why you need to stop trying to solve everybody's problems. That's it. Like <laughs> we need to categorically give up this focus on solving problems, which of course makes people go, um, 
you know, they politely look at me and go, well, that's nice, but that's the whole reason we're here. So I don't really understand why you're in front of us. Right. Uh, and then I just help them, you know, from that hook, I'll say it's actually higher impact to focus on fulfilling people's aspirations than it is to focus on solving their problems. Right. When you, when you're focused on solving, solving problems, you define people by their problem. Right. When you're focused on fulfilling aspirations, number one, you have to acknowledge that people have them. And then number two, you focus on fulfilling them, which means you're going to solve their problems on the way to the higher thing. So it's, it's a win. It's a win all the way around if we were to switch our attention from solving problems to fulfilling aspirations. The other mm-hmm. advantages that it has is when you focus only on problems, you tend to be crisis oriented. You tend to be reactive uh, and you tend to paint all the corners of your own mind with brokenness. And that's depressing. Got news for you. <laughs> that, that wears people out <laughs> even when they're still trying to do the good work. Conversely, when you recognize that there are plenty of aspiring people, hardworking people, hard striving people who are willing to earn, you know, learn and, and, and have yearnings. When you recognize that there's a whole population that, by the way, it's the same population that you've been talking about before that have all these desires and are willing to do the work. When you tell that story. And then you talk about what is systematically obstructing these, you know, earning, yearning, learning people from achieving their reasonable goals. The public is more willing to engage. They're more willing to help because you've described an aspiring person who's trying to achieve a worthy goal despite unfair barriers. And that strokes our, you know, that motivates us in a different way than when you describe the big, scary person that if we don't do something about them, is going to tear down society. Right. Same kids, same neighborhoods, same populations, but a totally different way of telling the story. Yeah, a lot of this is about how you talk about people. I always like to always like to um, sort of stress to people that it's actually less about how you talk about people and it's more about how do you think about them. Mm. Right? So yeah. if you think about a person as inferior, as deficient. As, so, for instance, I, I was just talking with a venture capitalist who wants to get more. He says, OWGs, he says, oh, white guys like me to invest in firms that are run by people of color. Uh, and one of the points that he was making is for the for the most part. The investors are basically afraid. They assume that if they put in the money, they're just going to get lower returns. You know, they, they might be willing to do it. They're just willing to take low. But all all that sort of um, presumption of inferiority is based on us all having these narratives of inferiority that are so available to us. And we don't have any counterbalancing narratives. So I don't even blame people for having these biases. I just like to point out there's a totally different way to look at it. That is also validated by data and facts. So, for instance, there's lots of ways to think about the so-called at-risk youth, but most at-risk youth still go to school. Right. So one of the many ways you can think about them is as students. Right. What do what do students who are in communities that are, you know, systematically disinvested in, systematically over policed, systematically uh, under resourced? What do those students do? to achieve their goals of graduating and growing up and having a life, normal goals, right? So we can talk about the at-risk youth, or we can talk about the student who has to try to achieve in communities that are under-resourced. Now, that is still an at-risk youth, but the difference between the two narratives is in one narrative, you've only defined the kid by their challenge. That's all anybody knows about them is that they come with problems. In the second narrative, you define a kid who's trying to overcome uh, barriers that they didn't create, Situations that they inherited, but they still have ambitions. They still have a will. They still have a positive aspiration. And that kid will, not surprisingly, elicit a more um, sympathetic response than the at-risk youth does, even though it's the same kid. You know, mm-hmm. So we just try to help people understand it's not about 
ignoring the problems at all. Yeah, of course, you're going to talk about the problems. It's absolutely about uh, defining people by something other than the challenge. If you weren't define, if you weren't defi- if you weren't introducing them by their weakest, you know, most limiting thing, if you weren't introducing them in a way that denigrates them, how else would you talk about them? And that's where asset framing comes in. You would talk about that they want the same things that anybody else wants, but they have to they have to try to achieve those things against headwinds that most of us don't face. That logical presentation makes more sense to people, right? The way that, and then the last thing I'll say on this, the way that we tend to do it um, actually primes people to believe that at-risk youth always struggle, at-risk youth always fail. Like basically all the problems come with their identity rather than people being, will, being willing to consider that they're external factors, right? They're born in a certain situation. They inherit, you know, injustices and inequities, right? And a person who has inherited things, you know, problems that they didn't create, might deserve a little extra input and effort from the rest of us to overcome those unfair barriers. But that's still being fair, right? That's not favoritism. That's that's being fair. And it's interesting you talk about this. It is on one level, it is about how we talk about people, but it's deeper than that. It starts with how you see people, not just what you yeah. say about yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. So you're encouraging people first to see the assets, yeah. Right. And in that yeah. in that context, what do assets mean? What do you mean by assets? Yeah, actually. So let me go a whole layer deeper than I have so far, which is awesome. um, everything that we do is actually rooted in cognitive science. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, studying, uh, you know, cognitive psychology, working with folks who are actually, uh, you know, cognitive psychologists. One of the things we realize that I think philanthropy underappreciates is all human beings decision making is narrative driven. All human beings, like and that's not opinion. <laughs> that, right. that is what yes. the world's that's what world's authorities on how cognition works. They say your brain is constantly forming mental narratives. It's constantly draw, drawing upon whichever patterns are easiest for it to recall, and then it makes rational judgments within that context, right? Uh, and what we tend to what we tend to do is we're like, oh yeah, the brain makes rational judgments, but we ignore that all of those judgments are primed by whatever narratives are easiest for the, the mind to recall. So we in philanthropy land say, oh, rationally, if we point out the crisis, then people will respond positively because we don't like crises, right? We want to resolve crises. Rationally, that's true. But from a narrative standpoint, if the narrative basically implies people created the crises, they brought it on themselves, they want privileges they haven't earned, like if that's the narrative that people have inherited, then guess what? You don't get the response that you think you might get. So um, the in, in the training, one of the things I like to remind people is – um, according to the Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman, um, who received the Nobel Prize in economics uh, for his research in terms of how people actually cognate, um, according to him, two processes are always in action when we make our decisions. One process is literally tied to our autonomic system. Like So the way I explain it is um, your, th- this intuitive process that we all have, it's because your, your physical brain is hardwired to your nervous system, right? You know, one, one, it's one set of wiring, you know, your brain and your nervous system, one set of wiring, not two separate systems. So the same way that your nervous system is always on and always firing, there's a part of your brain that's always on and always firing. It's always sense making. It's always pattern mapping. That part of your brain is autonomic. It, it, is, it, it does all these things before conscious thought, right? Like li- literally the way we breathe and think and sorry, the way we breathe and sense things, mm-hmm. that same process is happening on a mental level a thousand times a second, right? So the, the point of this is your brain forms mental narratives faster than it thinks, faster than you form conscious thought, 
a thousand times faster. Like it's not, it is not a race. It's not a, they're not even close. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if you understand that, then which narratives are priming your thinking greatly influence what you're willing to think greatly. So our whole thing is literally, if you're trying, and by the way, this argument that changing your frame, changing your narrative changes the level of impact that you'll be able to have. That's not, we didn't invent that either. The, the, the fathers of system science have right. argued that changing mental models is the mental models is the highest form of systems change. Right. And that's so a good way for folks. Sorry, go ahead. Pardon me? What was that? I was saying that's a good way for folks who are new to all this to think about narratives as mental models, sort of programming that we have, which is influenced yeah. by society and what we've heard about right. people and what they're like and how the world works. That's right. And in fact, if all your patterns about someone are essentially negative patterns, mm. I don't even blame people. Like, you know, so if all, if all you, you know, I'm a black dude, right? Uh, if all you've heard is like, you know, black dudes, dangerous black, you know, the you, you grew up in the era of the super predator myth, right? You know, if that's what if that's what you know about black men, then when I show up on a sidewalk or in an elevator and you don't know your brain, you have no choice but to be primed by the only narratives that you have. That's not a decision on your part. That's your brain recognizing patterns. Right? Mm. This guy fits the pattern of what I you know. So if we don't round out our patterns, then of course we're going to have stigmatizing responses to people. Of course we're going to totally undervalue people who fit those descriptions, and of course we're going to think that we're actually helping them. When what we're really trying to do, when you think about it from a psychological standpoint, if someone is threat primed in your mind, then you're not trying to help them. What you're trying to do is reduce the threat they represent. Mm-hmm. And if you step back and analyze it, that is what we do. We try to reduce the threat that the poor represent, that the at-risk youth, we, you know, we're trying to minimize their costs on society. That is not at all the same thing as promoting equity, right? Equity is about actually valuing people. Right. Helping them to realize their greatest potential, fulfill their aspirations. As I say, like equity is about fulfilling aspirations. Well, we don't even, we typically don't even know their aspirations. We don't ask them. We don't talk about their aspirations. We don't introduce them by their Like, So we're not trying to fulfill anybody's aspirations. We're trying to reduce the problem that they are for the rest of us. And we just got to wake up to that reality. And once we wake up to it, then we can change. Yeah. That, and your example that you are using the at-risk youth example of an adjective used to define a person, which is actually just a code word for all these big negative ideas that have been too common in the culture for yeah. too long. So it sounds like we're up to is, yeah, going reframing is shifting the way we, the words we use. But Again, I love how you're putting it, the way we see the people, the way we think to the people, the way we approach the whole situation. Yeah. Looking and I remember in the workshop how you showed some you show some content talking about at risk youth versus young people who are hungry to learn. Yeah. And that's just just right there. You've just you have a whole different image in your mind. It yeah. sounds so simple but so powerful at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a misperception that you know, if we dramatize crisis, we'll motivate people to be engaged. Right. And again, just stop and step back from it. Uh, when we dramatize crisis, we actually tap into people's fears, right? Th- those are all fear triggers, right? All of our, you know, survival instincts are kicked in when you dramatize a crisis. So yes, when people are afraid, they're motivated. They turn on, they activate, they pay attention. But the simple fact of the matter is we're not hardwired to sustain that. All your, all your adrenal responses are supposed to be temporary. It's not supposed to be a constant feed of that. If you're actually trying to motivate people and keep them engaged in a long term, you have to stimulate their aspiration. You have to stimulate their imagination of what's possible. You have to stimulate their belief that they're doing something 
that you know serves a higher purpose. And the ironic thing with with our space, with the work, you know, philanthropic work, we all get into the work to serve a higher, you know, to to have a an impact beyond just ourselves. So we all have this aspirational orientation, but we've inherited a you know 18th century noblesse oblige, help the poor kind of attitude about it. Uh, and it's not serving us anymore. For folks who whose eyes are being opened <laughs> to, and I've seen that happen many times through this work that you do, where people, a light bulb goes off and they realize, wow, I've been looking at the people I, I see myself as serving. I've committed my life to make things better in the world, but I've been looking at the people through a negative lens. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who want to like, make this paradigm shift right away. Are there some tips you can share yeah. or guidance? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple things. Um, number one, I uh, well, obviously take the asset framing training. That's good. But, but outside of that, um, number one, I invite people to sort of take the asset framing challenge, right? And, and here to, to do the, to apply this, it's a cognitive skill, right? It's a reasoning skill to apply the skill. It's a very, very simple thing to do. Ask yourself, how are you introducing XYZ, right? So to be clear, we're not saying you can never mention negatives. You absolutely can. We're not even saying you can never define people by the negatives. Occasionally, you know, you can. What we're saying is if you practice introducing people by their aspiration or contribution before you get to the negative thing, what that does for your mind is it, number one, primes you to recognize their aspiration, number two, recognize their contribution, and you see more options, when you tell the story that way, the funny thing about asset framing is um, when you compare it to deficit framing. Like, so if you deficit frame, you name their problem, you name their challenge, you don't mention their aspiration, you don't mention their contribution, right? So you left out at least half of who's in front of you. In asset framing, you actually tell the whole story. You start with their aspiration and then you talk about the challenges. So it is a fuller representation, actually, uh, of the situation. So anyway, so we invite people. Just practice that. Practice introducing folks by their aspiration and contribution first. Just, just you know, so that's one. Um, two, uh, when you think about, um, you know, how, how do we engage people? How do we raise money? You know, any of these kinds of things. You will discover that introducing folks by aspirations makes it easier for people to see affinities with folks they would not otherwise have seen. You know, you, 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 you know Hathaway has done the American Aspiration Study. Mm-hmm. Our aspirations overlap our values overlap uh, to an extremely high degree. So when you're introducing people that way, it actually becomes easier for folks to feel a sense of affinity, for a sense to not uh, for people to not other whoever it is, right? And to recognize that the same way this person who aspires to, you know, have their kids grow up and have a better world, so do I. It's just this person aspires to do that while they are homeless, and I aspire to do that, right. you know, on a different but. You know, we want the same things. Anyway, so I just maybe the, so I'll, I'll stop there. Maybe the biggest thing is take the hundred day asset framing challenge. Just practice the skill for a while, and what I can promise you, and it's a money back guarantee. Just call me up if, if it doesn't work. <laughs> what I can promise you is that literally, if we if you just do this for a hundred days, uh, you will see more opportunities. You'll see more options. You'll be less depressed actually because you're not painting all the corners of your brain with brokenness, mm. um, and you'll see that it's, it's better than the other way in the end. Yeah. Where do people who are interested uh, need to go online to find out about it? Yeah. Um, so uh, a couple places, uh, I run a nonprofit called BME community. Uh, it is built entirely on asset framing. However, the, the, the fun hook about BME is 
BME is all about asset framing the Black community, understanding Black people's aspirations, Black people's contributions, and then engaging uh, from that. So uh, if you go to bmecommunity.org, you will see that we define Black folks by their aspirations to live, own, vote, and excel in this country. It happens to spell out the word love. So we are we are working to build black love in America, you know, very experientially, very genuinely. That's one link. The second link is if you're serious about this idea, then you can take the Black Love Pledge at blackloveplege.org. It's just saying that you're one of those folks who willing to see black folks a different way. And then the third link is trabianshorters.com. And you had mentioned the American Aspirations Research, for those who aren't familiar with that, uh, where the Hathaway team surveys people from all walks of life all across the country about their aspirations for their lives and for the country. And just like you said, Trabian, it's amazing when you do that time and time again, you hear similar things from people from all walks of life, from all over the country, different backgrounds and beliefs looking. And the word and the idea of contribution comes up quite often, actually, people wanting to contribute to their communities mm-hmm. and to the country. Mm-hmm. And wanting to make a contribution is actually a big, uh, powerful human motivation that's in all of us. And we hear that all over. And you mm-hmm. talk about, let's talk about that that young per- person who's hungry to learn and wants to make a contribution to the world and help them do that versus yep. looking at them through a negative lens. Um, for folks who are interested in that, you can go to Hadaway.com and look under insights and you can get a free guidebook on that. And you would, the way I hear you talking about this trading is the way I counsel people too on this idea of how do we put people in the picture and separate the people from the problem. Amen. Is really what I hear you saying. Start with yes. talking about the person's genuine, authentic. This isn't making stuff up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Their right. aspirations. Right. What do they right. bring to the table? That's right. And then let's talk about the problems that get in the way. Is that about the size of it? That's totally I, I couldn't literally couldn't have said it better myself. It's absolutely that. And uh, and the beauty of it, um, to me anyway, is in applying this now for nine years, there's a few things that have happened that I that I, I wouldn't have assumed, but they're, they consistently happen. Uh, number one, folks who would otherwise feel ostracized, feel agency, right? I have just as much right to be here. I have just as I contribute. I, you know, I aspire and I'm, and I'm owning that. I'm claiming that I'm not, you know, they don't, people don't, you know, when, when you, when society relates to people by their deficits, then those people have to relate to society by their deficits, Right. So it ends up being this horrible, um, innervating practice of, you know, people can see me if I tell you the story of how I was, you know, raised by a single mom in the hood, right? That's an authentic. That's an authentic black story. One of the unintended consequences of our habit is we force people who might fit those descriptions to learn how to relate to the world from the lens that the world will see them. Like they won't see you if you don't tell the story a certain way. Mm. So that's terrible. <laughs> right. You're sort of people are inclined to live up to the negative expectations placed on. Well, them. like, honestly, it's, it's I don't even know if it's living up to the expectations as much as it is. If you if you have ever been, you know, the typical college scholarship applicant, then your <laughs> yeah. counselor will tell you to tell the worst possible story about your family, your neighborhood. You know, you got to mm-hmm. dramatize, you know, the worst <laughs> aspects of your life. Yep. And. That's what happens kind of systematically with with poor, like if you're poor, if you're you know, a boy of color in particular, you know, you get told if you want people to see you, you have to tell the story this way. If you tell it another way, you're in the you're in the irrelevant camp. 
but agency yeah. comes from telling the story a certain way. And I'm like, well, man, that's a, that's a whack way to, you know, to acquire agency. Right. Um, mm-hmm. if I could, if I could tell the worst story about myself, the best way, or if I, if I, if I get really good at telling terrible stories about myself, that makes me y'all, y'all can see me now. Right. Mm. Um, I don't think anyone in philanthropy, when you step back and think about that, I don't think you want to be that person who who says, you know, the only way I'm going to see you is if you can tell the worst story possible about you. That's something just icky about. Yeah. That. Well, um, that's interesting because in the world of philanthropy and foundations, um, I learned that pretty on and learning how they communicate. Um, often we'll say things like we work with the most marginalized communities, right? The worst off people or, you know, that sort of thing. I, yeah, yeah. you know, I kind of get what they're talking about, but yeah. this is Just creating that. the dynamic you're talking about. But that's why I call it the, that sort of 18th century noblesse oblige thing. You know, mm-hmm. the whole, you know, the idea that we, the, we, the gifted, we, the, you know, the, the, the uh, privileged will help you the underprivileged because we are such wonderful people. I'm like, yeah, I mean, come on, man. Like, in, in, the, in the modern age, that should that should feel kind of nasty to you. Like you, you, you should recognize that 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 I am greater than thou, and through my through my you know magnet magnanimity, um, you know I, I will bestow, I will breathe life into you. Like all that nonsense. Yeah. Um, here, here here's the negative uptake of that of that sort of privileged way. You know the the what what used to be called white man's burden, right? The um the 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 negative uptake of having that disposition is that. Philanthropy has spent billions since the war on poverty fighting poverty, billions since the civil rights movement fighting racism, right? But when black folks self-organize, when poor people self-organize, they don't count philanthropy as an ally. Institutional philanthropy just gets lumped in with the system. And the reason why you can drop hundreds of billions of dollars and still not be counted as an ally because if you spent that money to stigmatize me and to tell the world that I don't deserve, that I am lesser than, if that's, you know, you've invested more money in that stuff every year than all the production costs of all the Marvel movies that have been made in the last decade. <laughs> if you're doing that, then yeah, I don't think, I don't count you as an ally, no matter how much money you lay on the ground, mm. right? We, 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 we're just, we're, t- we're leaning our, our arguments up against the wrong fence, right? We're making opponents of people who should naturally be our allies, right? Um, Versus- and we're making it easier. Yeah. We're making it easier for folks to divide, actually. Right. Playing some into of us are div- hardworking and some of us are freeloading. No, no. All of us are hardworking. Mm-hmm. Now what? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, right. so, now yeah. let's get to work on some shared goals, right? That's sort go. of when you say, let's focus on the aspirations. Yeah. That yeah. sort of shifts the whole conversation, the whole dynamic. Yeah. And I think the fortunate thing for you and me is I think more and more folks in the field are just recognizing that the way we've been doing it is exhausting. <laughs> it's divisive. <laughs> uh, it's not, it's not as effective as we thought it was. Like there's just, you know, we, I think people are, are just recognizing these old habits uh, are failing us. Yeah. It's an old habits. That's a big part of it. These are mental models are habitual ways of thinking, which as you explained, come to us from our culture too. It's not like we're yeah. making it up, but this is yeah, kind of a yeah. programming that we have to overcome. Well, just yeah. one last question, because you talked about at the beginning, this will help you. And a lot of our listeners are heads of organizations and, you know, change yeah. makers. And you're saying this helps you make more change. It can help you yeah. increase your impact, raise more money. Yeah. Uh, let's end on that aspirational note. Tell us about, you know, how does that happen? What is the evidence there yeah. of the kind of Yeah, so, you know, we, we work with a lot of good shops. One of them is Donors Shoes, which I think a lot of folks know. Uh, the yeah. great thing about Donors Shoes as an organization is they're a crowdfunding platform. Uh, they help 
um, teachers raise money for projects in classrooms. You know, uh, Donut Shoes also has a, a, a commitment to equity, right? Looking looking at you know uh, schools that have been disadvantaged, classrooms have been disadvantaged, that sort of thing. The interesting thing about the platform, though, is they raise north of one hundred and sixty million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Half of it comes from individual donors. Half of it comes from corporations and foundations. They have found that when the projects are asset framed, and by the way, they do 10,000 projects a year you know, or more, right? When they're asset framed, they raise more money, right? Not a ton more, but more, not less, right? And, right. So, and so any of us who believe that you have to you know, dramatize crisis and the like, well, data in the field shows that you can raise just as much money without stigmatizing people. Um, another of my favorite examples, um, certainly marriage equality as a, as a law benefited from the willing to asset frame uh, the LGBTQIA communities, right? But, yeah. but my, my latest favorite example is actually what happened in Florida a couple of years ago when yeah. Desmond Mead was able to um, get a constitutional amendment added to Florida saying that once you serve your time in prison, you're now able to vote again. You're, you're, you're reenfranchised. Now, skip what the governor did after that. <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to make right. is, yep. point I'm trying to make is, in a state that had been historically red, right, 1.4 million formerly incarcerated people suddenly had the right to vote, and the law that he had overturned had been on the books for 150 years. People had been fighting this forever, the old way. His campaign, he told me, was asset framed. They spent zero dollars on oppositional funding. They spent zero dollars on scare tactics, right? It was all about the aspirations. It was all about recognizing the contributions of those who have served their time and just want to be regular citizens again, right? And from that approach, they got Democrats, Republicans, and independents in the state of Florida to vote. Five million, by the way. Five million Democrats, right. independents, and Passed big time. Yeah. yeah. So my point, it, right, it wasn't, a, right, it wasn't, a, again, not a close race. It wasn't race. close. It wasn't close. And, 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 and we need to recognize that when these things were argued the old way, stand still. When you right. argue from a way that speaks to people's aspirations, right, speaks to our common values, uh, actually dignifies the folks at the center of the question, you can achieve more you know, in policy. right? You can achieve more in fundraising. You can achieve more in which groups are willing to engage with you. Uh, I didn't mention, we haven't spent much time on this. I know we're out of time, but, you know, Asset framing appeals to the Democrats. It appeals to the Republicans. It appeals to the independents, yeah. right? So you can engage when you when you're making the case that way. You can engage all the different parties. In fact, I will plug this. Um, you know, your shop did research for us last year into who might be you know audiences for this asset framing way of talking. And one of the surprises that came from it was a recognition that there's you know roughly 39 million people, maybe more, right. at least 39 million people who are hungry for this way of argue the case, who, who want it, who love it. And that grouping uh, spreads across the p- political parties, right? So when you learn how to talk this way, you actually build those bridges that everybody's trying to figure out right now. And you do it in a way that doesn't sacrifice your own values, right? So it's just a better way. We're just not familiar with it yet. Absolutely. I think we should. Um, I love the plug of the work we did together on um, identifying an audience of Nearly 40 million people in this country who are ready, willing, and able to to support this cause, support African-Americans' aspirations, but that bigger sort of drive for unity and progress in the country for everybody. Um, yeah. And when 
uh, and I love it. I remember how excited we all were to see that result because we, I guess, back to your whole point about from the beginning of the conversation, are bombarded every day, all day long with all the problems and all the negativity, which is why we're here. We're trying to, yes. you know, we're trying to address those problems. That's true. But shifting the focus on the the assets and the opportunities out there not only makes you feel better, but also gets the work done. You, you find your people and rally them to the cause. Um, so I think that's a great, um, great note to leave with people. And, um, so for those who want to learn more, Trabian Shorters, you can find online in the bmecommunity.org, um, are a good place to start. Thanks again, Trabian. We know you're very much in demand. One of the best workshops on equity out there. Um, so I'm happy to plug it again. Um, We'd love to have everybody reach out and learn more. And uh, we'll talk again on Achieve Great Things. Thanks so much. No, thank you so much, Doug. Appreciate you.